By staying home, you can not only protect your health and that of those around you, but ensure that our healthcare professionals and our healthcare systems can focus on those who need their help. Hello and welcome to Corona Movie Club, my entertainment world's answer to social isolation. Um, so we have a schedule of movies and we're all going to watch them independently in our own socially isolated homes and then three times a week we're going to get together over the internet and talk about them just like your mom's old book club used to do. Um, except now there's nothing old about it because it's all over the internet and we're all social isolating so that we don't help spread the coronavirus around the universe. Um, so we have people from all over North America who are participating and there's going to be different people on each call from the uh, core group. And so every episode, I'm going to come in and introduce the film that we're going to be watching, as well as the names of the people that are going to be on that week's call or that episode's call, because we're going to be doing this three times a week. Um, so I hope you guys enjoy. Let's go to the movies. It's something to do. Welcome back to another episode of Corona Movie Club. Today we're talking about the Netflix new release film, Horse Girl, co-written and starring Alison Brie, who for my money is one of the great uh, TV actresses of her generation, but hasn't ha done quite as much on film. Um, but I think with Horse Girl, she proves that she, she certainly could. Um, if you're not watching Glow, what is wrong with you? Uh, also Bojack and Community and Mad Men and Alison Brie's just the greatest, guys. Uh, she's pretty spectacular in this film, um, which has also a great supporting cast, including uh, Paul Reiser, who I adore, Molly Shannon, so many good people in this. Um, it's a great film. It's a really challenging film, really odd, um, really dives deep into uh, issues of mental illness and depression and all that kind of stuff. So trigger warnings on that, spoiler alerts as always. Um, but I think this is a really interesting discussion. It's certainly one of my favorite episodes of Corona Movie Club so far. Um, it was a small group talking about this one, which I think um, was appropriate for the size of the film and the subject matter at, at hand. Um, it was me, which is I'm Kelly Bedard, in case you haven't figured that out. Uh, so I'm on the call, as well as Alex Uriarte, Laura Hubbard, Duncan Derry, and Nicole Falgu. Um, so I hope you enjoyed the episode. Who's who, who can tell me what that crazy movie was about? I, wh <laughs> what just happened? I, I tried to explain it to Michael and... My my response was, honey, I wish I could explain it to you. <laughs> I really liked it, though. I mean, what did you guys think? I definitely liked it. I cannot say I understood it for sure, but I definitely liked it. Wait, <laughs> they didn't get it? Well, I mean, didn't get it. I mean, I thought I found I found some pretty clear meaning in it pretty quickly. Uh -huh. Oh, I yeah. mean, yeah, certainly like the, the, the basic themes are obvious and that sort of thing. But like from a moment to moment, it was purposely difficult to follow and exactly know what was happening, which was right. the point, but it was, it threw me through a loop a little bit. Yeah. It's definitely one of those things where you kind of have to watch it again. Like I just started, like after I finished watching, like, okay, I need to go through some of these things again. Um, but hmm. it definitely, I mean, I think it's sort of the, the reality imposing on her sort of little safe protective bubble that she's created for herself and obviously mental illness, um, all these. I mean, I think that's sort of really the main 
solidifying theme in that you could view it right. through that lens or it could be that the alien abductions etc are real so i guess it's sort of up to interpretation yeah, um, certainly with that last shot it definitely yeah. leaves it open to interpretation um alex what did you think you seem to have thoughts so i i mean i loved it because i think everybody has felt like Sarah. And I also noted that I don't think they actually say Sarah's name until halfway into the movie. I also may not have been paying that much attention. Oh, wow. um, she has a name tag at work. She has a name tag at work, but nobody, nobody calls her by her name that I could notice uh -huh. until, until people started showing concern for her. Because what do we do as people when we're trying to express concern? It's like, Kelly, are you okay? You know, right? Like it, it, it draws you a little bit nearer. And so that's something that I, that I, that I realized I, or that I thought that I observed in the movie, but of, of course the mental illness, and if um, any of you know people who have suffered through mental illness or who have experienced bouts of anxiety and depression, I certainly have, I've had my things. Um, and that feeling, uh, like there's a look on, what's her name, the Sarah's friend, the one from the craft store? Jean? Yeah, Joan. Joan, Joan. You know, Joan's like, you should have fun on your birthday and just like the blankness of Sarah's face in all of this as she's cycling through the fact that she's not actually seeing anybody with her Zumba friends and that it's gonna be another, like that, that awkwardness and the inability to connect when you're dealing with a, a thing in your head that you can't articulate, I found it to be um, horrifying and I needed a drink. So um, I'm still drinking after it myself. But, I would yeah. be lying if I didn't say that I was very, very deep in a bottle of scotch while watching this movie. So when <laughs> I was watching it, it was probably as they intended, pretty, pretty deep in the scotch and enjoying every minute of it. Indeed. The one thing uh, that I noticed at the very start, which sort of seemed like a one-off odd comment at first, but then having watched it seems more prescient, is that the opening credits seemed very much like the 90s style font and that too many cooks. Yeah. You remember that skit? And now looking back at that note later, I'm like, oh, this is kind of not dissimilar. And then you sort of have your very first loop where it's sort of like for a while, I actually couldn't tell if it was actually set in the 90s. I don't know if anyone else had that. Um, it, in had terms of it had a nostalgic thing to it. Yeah. Um, but it was very much her first loop of the days, like her days going like, all right, there was that nostalgia. And then it goes steadily worse and worse sort of each time the day repeats. Mm -hmm. I don't know if any, and it just gets bizarre at the end. So I don't know if anyone else. Well, that font and that whole, like, especially the beginning, it was, to me, it was kind of like, too many cooks is kind of a good reference. It was like sort of absurdist yeah. and quirky. And as the movie was developing and you're realizing how serious this person's situation is, I was thinking like how, I was trying to question how well the movie was walking the line of taking that seriously and empathetically and having this absurdist angle that reflects her point of view, but doesn't kind of make the whole thing seem too slightly, I don't know, quirky. And I found myself going back and forth, like scene by scene, literally on how I felt the movie's tone was working for the story it was trying to tell. I kept changing my mind about the movie. Uh, and I literally finished it five minutes ago, so I'm still trying to figure out what I think. But yeah, that was kind of a thought I had. And also the thing you said, Alex, about how people use names to kind of connect with someone when they're going through something difficult. I 
I really noticed throughout the movie, like the way, especially Joan and other characters, when she would describe her situation to them, she would, they'd be very like, that's horrible, that's awful. It was kind of like slightly removed, slightly automatic, and it would take them a while to, I don't know, warm up. If they were willing to engage with her, it would take them a while. Joan, I felt, was like the only one who could really do that, who wasn't yeah. like a professional psychiatrist or therapist. And I thought that was like, that was very well done. That observation, I thought about how people engage with someone like Sarah. Um, it was very, very accurate. Yeah, but even Joan, who was one of the most empathetic characters, um, did say like when when Sarah's having her meltdown in the back in the back room, she says like picture flowers, replace yeah. a bad thought with a positive yeah, one. All these like really reductive sort yeah. of ways of speaking about it, right? Yeah, that's very much to minimizing. Oh, go ahead. No, no, please, Nicole, go ahead. Uh, to such a degree that it uh, it actually kind of to me, I know that Sarah has that moment of. I can I can hear the future, um, but to me it, it also kind of screamed. This, these are platitudes you tell people anytime anyone's having a meltdown. That it's almost so rehearsed that it's not necessarily that she's hearing the future. It's that she's heard this so many different times that she's gotten yeah. through these different stages of mental illness. That is it really telling the future or hearing the future, or is it actually I've just heard this so many times that it's hammered into my head that I know what's coming next. Mm. Canned responses and minimizing experiences and feelings, um, not just in this movie, but in real life, is, is what's so damaging, right? Because that crazy music that happens when, when she's having an episode or when she's in her, when she's in her thing, um, usually happens after like a canned, inauthentic response. And for me, I'm, I'm, I'm a pretty emotional person. Like, you know, for my, my, for example, my, my mom passed away two months ago and like the most triggering things were me, for me were pe when people were like, you know what, like she's in a better place or she'll be, you know, like, and I'm like, how do you fucking know that? I don't know if that's true or not. And I think for Sarah being told, you know, think about flowers or you're crazy um, is the least helpful thing that could have happened to her. Which is why, I, Kelly, I saw you posted this um, to Instagram, the moment with her social worker who does not take the fact that she does not remember him personally, um, is genuinely looking out for her and says, I believe that you are telling me your truth. Uh, while I have doubts about abductions and aliens, um, I think that we can help you with what you're feeling because what you're feeling is real. And But a lot of people don't have those tools, right? Mm -hmm. Most people, they, they, watch, they watch other movies where they're like, I'm so sorry, you know, they, they, they do the canned response. I, I don't know if, if, if that's what the, the movie was talking about, but it certainly feels like real life to me. Yeah, for me, the best, but the moment of the movie that really sticks with me, and every time, I've seen it twice now, and every time it, it just reduces me to a puddle, um, is the clip I put on Instagram, which is Jay Duplass as the social worker. He specifically says, she says, um, I wish I could go back and start again. And he says, we can start from right here. And that gets me every time. Too. Every single time, like his, his empathy is, is so extraordinary. Um, but it's still also, it has that like clinical distance of like a realistic, like someone who he's extraordinarily empathetic, but he's not empathetic in that like TV show, sort of like New Amsterdam way where they're like going to break all the rules for this one patient who's super special. Like you can picture him doing this with every single patient. 
and going through this. And this is just like his day to day. This is how he does this. Um, and it, I just found that remarkable. He was the thing that really stood out to me. Which is why I think it was so jarring to me that her biggest break and the longest break that we got to see, the one that actually caused me to sit there thinking for however long that sequence lasted, is this reality or is this reality as she knows it? All of this came immediately after her interactions with the social worker. Mm-hmm. And that, to me, spoke volumes that the first person to finally have a real conversation with her about everything she was experiencing and then boom next scene you're you're starting to wonder is he actually telling her he loves her why is she wearing this slightly off outfit in the in the tarot readers colors like what is going on and then to find out that you know that stemmed from the only real conversation she's had is it's very very jarring I think that's also a testament to um or or I think it's early, yeah, earlier in the movie, she, she mentions her, her grandmother having been institutionalized. And then when Reagan shut down all of the um, facilities, she just was put out on the street. And Sarah has been in this facility for 72 hours, sort of standard 72 hour hold. She only remembers 24 hours of it. She's clearly not ready to be put back out into the world. And she's sent out anyway. And I think um, that break is sort of an interesting consequence of like maybe if she'd stay if she'd been able to stay if they'd been able to accommodate her Mm -hmm. um staying a little bit longer and getting a little bit more support maybe she would have fared better Mm -hmm. um but we also don't know what happens to her in the end really we don't they sort of do bend the idea of what's real and what's not she seems to come seems to come to some sort of acceptance in some way shape or form of what that is i can't specifically say, I don't know if anyone else got that feeling, because she seemed at peace in that very last yeah. bit when she was in her grandmother's dress. And I mean, I don't know if it's accepting her, the condition that she has. Um, oh, one thing. Or, Sorry, go ahead. I didn't mean to oh, no, no, you, 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 you go. Yeah. Um, I thought it was curious to have this whole like tarot card reader thing. That, that seemed random to me. And the color of the fabric that this lady had finally settled upon was Mm -hmm. a pink color. For Uh, protection. For protection. Yeah, so that, I often, that that was interesting to me because I think a lot of this was her trying to protect herself. So you see her very first day, like she's, things go in her routine. Like she visits her horse, she makes her like lanyard, she has a lovely day at work comparatively but things like slowly and slowly go wrong so she sort of clings to these things like she starts burning the sage like oh she said that's protective too and the peach so i think it's sort of like a her grandmother's dress is also peach yeah which is protective yeah yeah by the aliens in her grandmother's peach dress yeah it's sort of her own reality is because her actual reality is pretty grim like her doesn't know who her father is her mother committed suicide a year before and so she's sort of taking these things and like clinging to them and that settling into whatever your 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 thing is is more comfortable than facing the mundaneness of everything else around you especially the purgatory thing because they think they mentioned that was sort of a coping (laughs) mechanism for her like 
after her mother's death. Like she just engrossed herself in it and watched it and it became very important to her. And then you have sort of the reality, like where that's not the only reality, where others think it's kind of strange that all you can talk about is this show or that um, you're not going out and you seeing your friends and it sort of pokes holes in her reality. And it seems like she's trying to protect it in any way she can. I mean, I've watched Purgatory if it became a show. So, <laughs> I mean, I'm in. I'm sold. But it, it was basically Supernatural, right? I, I think so. pretty much. Yeah, which is one of Supernatural's a great example because it's something like, I don't remember, but something like 14 seasons, 22 episodes a season, 43 minutes an episode. Like it's one of the longest shows that there is in a, in a serialized narrative way. And I, I think that's an interesting, it's not obviously the most important thread in the film, but there's something interesting about finding comfort and escape in some like long, long form serialized storytelling and really investing. It's like she can escape into that world. And um, especially for someone who's really isolated and somebody who doesn't um, have many actual human connections, having these characters that you care deeply about and you feel it with serialized television, the great thing about it is you feel like you know these people. Hmm. And so it further isolate, it fi she finds comfort in it, but she then also uses it as a crutch to further isolate from the real people in her life because she's so invested in these this particular world. And it's not that she just quote unquote watches a ton of TV. She watches this very specific thing. Um, so it's like she's visiting her friends and spending time with them and in their world, which is a more comfortable space for her. Yeah. To such a degree that she even has difficulty uh, conducting any conversations with anybody other than the guy who shares a name with the lead character in her crutch. Yeah. yeah. That's the first time that she you see her have any type of uh, not canned conversation where she's finally letting herself out of the box, so to speak. Was it absolutely cringy when she was meeting Darren? Yeah. I mean, I actually physically cringed so many different times, <laughs> mostly because I am actually that awkward. Um, no, you're not. I, I mean, I was getting some, some serious flashbacks to our college parties when I saw them dancing because I was like, <laughs> somebody filmed me. Oh my God. <laughs> um, Did you do horse dance as well? Oh, I, oh the horse yeah, dance. Absolutely. You have to horse dance. <laughs> if you're not horse dancing, are you really at a college party? Um, but I, I thought it was interesting that that's the first time that you get to see her beyond, um, you know, her, her very sheltered, her very, um, you know, she, she becomes this closeted person and the first time you actually see her step outside of it is because of somebody who shares a name with this TV show that she brings up so often her roommate rolls her eyes. Like the first thing you see is her roommate um, basically going, why are you watching this? Like go out and do something, come out with us. Uh, I will say for those that have a socially awkward bench, it was a very much a I'm in this photo and I don't like it situation sometimes. <laughs> it's just like, oh God. There's yeah. yeah. That like the, the Zumba classes kind of stood out as something that I didn't fully buy that she might be comfortable doing. Right. I, that, I mean, I was surprised. I thought she might have made that up, but I'm like, you know what? I'm 
proud of you that you actually went to this Zumba class. It yeah. still didn't work out. But she doesn't do it comfortably. Right. Yeah. Like she, she does it to say that she does Zumba. And yeah. she, she, does, she makes the motions of it. But she still goes. Like she's still there. And she's around all yeah. these people that she doesn't know. Yeah. And but it's almost like, as if she read on a like she read an article that was like 10 ways to improve your life go take yeah. a zumba class take up crafting <laughs> you know what i mean and she's he's, she's going like through this yeah. implication that it has happened before that she's been institutionalized before and mm -hmm. like maybe the zumba maybe the crafting these have been things that she's been given in the past ideas that she's been given to improve her life and like the basic structure is staying the same and she's having these regular breakdowns but there's things that she's added in her life that she's trying to make it work. Yeah. And to some degree it does and some degree it doesn't. Yeah, because those are the sort of stock recommendations you get, right? Like incorporate exercise, make work on a healthy diet, take up a hobby, like do, there's like sort of the system yeah. of baseline things that people tell you to do when you're spinning out. Um, now, so yeah. To what extent like her, like her roommate might've known about her condition beforehand or if it was all news to her because she, even though the roommate would get aggravated, she didn't, like when she was burning sage everywhere, she didn't necessarily seem shocked. It was just like, okay, this is happening. And I mean, yeah. I would be pretty shocked if my, if my roommate was just magically burning yeah. sage. But she, um, she seemed annoyed, but she didn't, I don't know, maybe, maybe I misread this, but she didn't, she was like, okay, this is kind of another thing that happens. Yeah. It was the boy. She kind of over it, I yeah. guess. Where I come from, we burn sage in all of our rooms. <laughs> So that's I mean, do you, but do you get it from somebody who just pulls it out of a craft store out of their purse and says, this is my business card? No, we get it. We get it from, from witch doctors, Cuban witch doctors. I love it. <laughs> I mean, personally, if I was just going to hand out a, a, a business card that was made of herbs of any kind, it would probably be rosemary. Uh, but sage works too, I guess. It smells better. <laughs> oh, it really does. Doesn't it beg the question though, why they call this horse girl and not Zumba girl or like craft store girl? Because yeah. There's a very specific, like, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, archetype? Yeah. Sort of like an art, yeah, like a, a very specific archetype or like an, an image that really is conjured up by horse girl, right? Like that's such a trope. It makes me think of um, Tina Belcher from Bob's yeah. Burgers. Yeah. Um, it comes up in Equus where they talk about, um, you know, like all teenage girls being obsessed with horses. And then um, people who sort of hold on to that, it's sort of like a prolonged adolescence thing. Um, and it's in, in Equus, they talk about how that's like all tied to your like sexual awakening and all that kind of stuff. Um, I think it's a very specific, evocative image, the idea of like horse girl, um, and also her horse past and the, and Willow specifically is much more central to her own sense of being and who she believes herself to be in her priorities, whereas Zumba is just a thing she does. Right. Right. Like it's, yeah. it, whereas the horse, if, 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 um, even when Jay Duplass, whose name, I, Ethan is his, is the social worker's name, um, when he's talking about, oh, we've met before, we, um, we talked about your horse and your crafting. Those are the first things he mentioned. Like she talked about her horse and you can just picture her in therapy spending 45 of her 50 minutes about the horse. Right. Right. But you're right. It's not like an integral part of the plot, really. Yeah. I think it's interesting though, because it's, it's not even just the 
the the superficial like of course that it evokes a certain image you know of teenagers who enjoy being around horses and learning how to ride but it also kind of harkens back to when everything started to change over for her Mm. and I get that sense a lot with the flashback we have to her friend becoming partially paralyzed after falling off of a horse that's the first time that we get anything that really would point to why she's experiencing a lot of the depression side of her symptoms Mm. I mean let's if we push aside the paranoid schizophrenia for a second and just focus on you know the depression and the withdrawing from society it it really does start it seems like from the timeline that it's at the point where her friend falls off the horse and becomes partially paralyzed and she kind of to a certain degree I think holds herself responsible and that's why she keeps going back and visiting the friend and taking her for walks um but also it sets this whole chain forward of things that have just piled on to make this depressive state even worse. Hmm. The interesting thing, I saw like it was like a Forbes article about this afterward, but when she, they ask her like, are you feeling anxiety? Are you feeling depression? She says like, no, I'm not feeling depressed at all. Like I'm a one on the depression scale. And they sort of talked, I think it was, psychotic depression which is a specific thing where she sort of escapes builds this whole reality to sort of escape from having to feel the depression mm-hmm. oh 100 maybe yeah but i uh, think that's absolutely part of it yeah but it definitely it was interesting because she was definitely dealing with something on the depression scale but there was that disconnect and she wasn't really acknowledging it at least in her sessions with Ethan, right, Ethan? Yes. Where you can't feel it. I mean, I've done a bit of therapy in my own life and I did um, cognitive behavioral therapy and there was a whole phenomenon where I had a similar experience. I related to that piece as well. She was like, I'm very, very anxious. Um, But instead of for me, I was like, it's not that I'm not, it's not that I'm depressed. It's not that I'm anything. I I actually can't feel anything. I can't feel feelings. I can't feel when I'm like, I'm, I don't feel hungry. I don't feel scared. I don't feel sad. I don't feel anything. All I fear is this unrelenting dread and anxiety. And um, there are, they, our, our brains and our bodies are so connected uh, that, that the brain will literally preserve your body from feeling anything, like down to, down to hunger. Like mm. I wonder why people lose so much weight when they get super depressed. Um, some people do that. It's because they can't feel it or, um, you know, it, it, like that's just one small example. Um, you know, for me, like I saw like, you know, a small but relatively, you know, significant accident happen like right in front of my eyes one day uh, walking to see a therapist. Um, mm-hmm. This man had collapsed and there were enough people there that I knew that he was being cared for, but like I literally did not feel a thing. And that was the first thing that I went and I talked about. And it's, it's a connective thing. Like how, how, what is your ability to reach into yourself and be like, uh, you know, my body's tense, I'm short of breath and I'm sweating, like I'm anxious or I'm scared. You know, sometimes like you, you desensitize yourself as a coping or as a, uh, as a survival mechanism. Um, And that, 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 that relate, that doesn't, it's not an age thing. It's a trauma and experience thing. Yeah. I also found it was interesting though, that the one person she really had as an anchor who had experienced what it was like to be around folks in her family that also had um, any level of mental illness, any, any part of that scale was Gary. 
who didn't want to talk to her about the mental illness. So her one, the one person who could connect all of this just kind of grazes over it, hands her a few hundred dollar bills and calls it a day. Mm. Um, so she's not even really, it's the first time she's ever actually getting to talk to somebody about everything she's feeling is with the social worker. And the only thing she can think of is the one thing she really doesn't connect all that much to her grandmother. She connects the, what I'll call as a paranoid schizophrenia, because it's, you know, in my mind, that's a lot of what this is. She definitely sees that with her grandmother. Uh, but I don't know if she, she does these things that she considers generalized or people in everyday population has like I deal with generalized anxiety every day I know exactly what you're talking about when you say this unrelenting dread but I don't think she can consider what it's like to experience anything further than that she wants mm. to be like everybody else but she doesn't to a certain degree she wants to be a grandmother because she wants to be a clone but she doesn't want to be a grandmother because she doesn't want to have these same issues coming up again um, and the only person who really seems to get it would be Gary, who doesn't want to talk about it. Mm. That is really, I think, part of the sad thing is that she does have this want and need to connect with other people, but it's just like there's this barrier and they cannot connect on a real level. Like they don't understand where she's coming from. Like it's just very, she can't operate in the way that they do like with the extroverted roommate and her you particularly sort of saw how they dealt with things very differently and how certain things in terms of socializing etc came more naturally and easy, easily to her but it was a very more cumbersome process for her and so it was hard for her to make that connection I really like the roommate character because I think you have an initial superficial impression of her when she first appears and you think, oh, they're just so very different. But then you see her trying to, you know, when she has no one to hang out with on her birthday. It's a really, it's like kind of an awkward gesture to force other people to come over and hang out, but she does that and you kind of see the roommate's pleasure and hopefully bringing pleasure to uh, Sarah's life. Yeah. But then you you also see just her like growing impatience and you kind of understand that and that, for a character who like, I don't know, it felt like she was not even gonna be an important character. I felt like that interaction, someone who doesn't know her that well, but who's living with her and who wants to help, but has limits to how much she's willing to help and how much she, what she can do. Yeah. I thought that was very beautifully like done for something yeah. that was central to the movie. I agree. I also yeah. found it interesting that um, to kind of go along the socialization lines of things was that when she's on her date with Darren, one of her first instincts is to bring him to the graveyard to quote unquote, introduce him to her mother. The yeah. only other person who would have really understood. And I see Alex is kind of like cringing. I actually, my first thought when I saw her or heard her say like, let's take a drive. I want to take you somewhere was that he was, she was going to take him to the graveyard and I automatically started cringing. Then mm -hmm. she started some light stalking and that made me cringe even further and I'm like, okay, we're out of the woods. Like, she's this is the least cringy thing she's gonna do. And then she brings it to the graveyard again. I'm like, damn it, I thought we were past this. But it's this bastardization of like, let's meet the parents that is also really telling. She she really doesn't get social cues. So it, it's 
It also felt in that moment, like that whole sequence was when the movie really ramps up. Yeah. And, and it really feels like she is entering a particular episode that she's experienced before, but she hasn't been in that phase really up to this point in the movie. It's like, there's been enough evidence for her to feel like, oh, maybe she is a clone and things are kind of, it's the, what her mental illness and the pathology is starting to dominate everything. And you, at that point, it was kind of fascinating because I felt like, we, the audience, I mean, we're empathetic to her, but it almost felt like we were detaching from her a bit. Because yeah. I felt like it had ramped up for her so suddenly, like plausibly, but so suddenly. And you're suddenly more with Darren and you're like, oh, wow, oh, crap. But, and I thought that was, again, it was like both, I was like, what is the movie doing? Is this working? And eventually I decided, yeah, this is working. But yeah, it felt like we were following it almost became Darren's journey for a weird moment. And a lot of that is because we're seeing her weaponized part of herself. I mean, think of the thing that she uses to basically threaten him is crafting scissors. <laughs> you'd think if you're going to threaten somebody, use something like a knife or a gun or yeah. something, but she uses crafting scissors. That's basically the one of the two things that we've been mentioning as what really is what drives her you got her you got the horses you got the crafting and one of those things is weaponized against the one person who really seems interested in deep delving a little deeper into who she is and i thought that was that was the moment i definitely was jumping in on oh boy darren doesn't get what he got himself into he doesn't understand this is going to get real bad for him real soon he gets needs to get in the car and go so that's, I wholeheartedly agree with that. Yeah. I felt that way about him too. I also wondered if he also had like a little issue, like he had some slight issues as well, because I don't know, I thought that there were some moments that either didn't seem real or that he seemed to indulge a little bit more, yeah. not out of authenticity. Right. Yeah. Um, I, and I can't quite articulate or to place my finger on it, but um Duncan, it, it sounds like you you understand what I'm getting at. Yeah. Um, he wasn't a, a pure actor, and I hate pure actors anyway, but I couldn't quite put my finger on what it is that he wanted. Like, delved into a girl, you know, during a day, she's talking about alien abductions and clones and brings her, uh, brings him to his, his mother or her mother's grave. And then in a scenario that might be real or unreal, like, ha you know, fornicates with her in this strange costume. I, I just... Something there's not right. I'm not sure okay. what did that did that part happen? I don't think that part happened. I think that was all a dream. Because I think that, that was dream. Yeah, I think that was the the actor from that series, Purgatory. That well, was it started, it started as Darren and then it turned into, into Purgatory Darren. Darren. Yeah, okay. Yeah. But even up to that, like on there for he shows up and he when you, you first see him, you're like, Oh, this guy's like kinda lame. And and then he they kind of connect and I Agreed. It felt like he was indulging him, but I also felt, yeah, they are kind of connecting because I think he, there's a degree to which he could latch onto her, especially when he wasn't taking what she was saying seriously. He thought like, yeah, we can, yeah, sure, clones, aliens, I love that. That's great. I kind of have those thoughts too. And he, he thought she was a manic pixie dream girl. Exactly. Yeah. Well, yeah exactly. <laughs> and he also talks about like, I haven't left my apartment forever. He goes on way too much about his ex. He has a lot of issues as well, but it's like. Yeah, it's, it's you then see, oh, suddenly there's a huge gap between them. Yeah, for sure. I mean, so, okay, so there seems to be a, a somewhat of a consensus that the, the sequence where she's wearing the outfit and all that stuff is a dream. Yes. What, 
I struggled so much. That's why I opened this conversation with like, what happened in this movie? Because it was my second time through and I, and I was focusing a lot on plot instead of on themes. And I just, what happened in this movie? Like what was happening with the phone call and the water tower and the car and then how much of it was a dream and what is with the final scene? Are we supposed to like believe that it's possible that maybe she was right? Or is that last scene like she walked off into the woods alone and maybe is in danger and we're just left with her shoes? Like, does anyone have a sense or am I just on the wrong track and even trying to figure it out? I think I think it's a bunch of fugue states. Mm. I think it's a bunch of fugue states uh, of varying lengths. <laughs> I mean, she drove her own car. She did. Yeah. That. I mean, Brian. Brian keeps uh, the roommate's boyfriend keeps bringing up that she's a sleepwalker. I mean, you get that one scene where he gets so freaked out that he burps at her. <laughs> um. Well, I mean, imagine getting so freaked out that you burp. Uh, it, it's it's yeah, he was gross. <laughs> yeah, just in general, I was like, okay, you need to go. Um, but so I'm either, I'm between, she has these really vivid nightmares that cause her to sleepwalk all of these different things. But I'm much more willing to believe based on everything we see as far as her mental health, that these are all fugue states that she's having. Mm. And I think in that article, the Forbes article that I mentioned, they I didn't notice this in my first watching of it but apparently the sun or whatever she floats up into it looks like the purgatory symbol from that tv show which i guess would indicate that it is something of her creation mm-hmm. as well so i think i would argue in it's sort of a i guess fugue state or dissociative state or something that she creates for herself I totally agree with you, Laura. For me, like the best metaphor that I can possibly come to is like, you ever see, apparently, if you put all of um, Vincent van Gogh's artwork together, like, you know, in, in, in sequence or mm-hmm. in chronological order, like you can see his like syphilitic insanity kind of progressing. And then you get all of these like beautiful paintings with all the swirls. And then somewhere in the middle, he like, cuts his ear off. That for me, the ending for me is like, she cuts her ear off. Like mm-hmm. that, that's, that's, that's kind of what I, what I saw, and I'm not sure what, um, what's her name, Allison Brie, Brie Allison. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. uh, she, I don't know, because I, I, I do think that this is a story about her real life and, and her family, but um, I think it's kind of like two worlds in one. It's, it's, it's her like embracing and leaning into this illness that is giving her so much anxiety and thrill, uh, but it is also, indulging a fake reality um and and calling it her own i i mean i don't know and and that might be the more validating place for her to be um i don't know so the what contributes to my confusion about the ending is that one of the things she says when she's sort of spinning out and trying to describe to i think ethan what her reality her perception of reality is is when she says that she's not a clone she is her grandmother because time is one big loop and all this sort of complicated things um can anyone offer any sort of explanation as to the like something that happens at the very very beginning and at the very very end which is the closing of the loop with molly shannon witnessing the horse horse walking by 
which really threw me mostly because it happens through Molly Shannon's point of view. We see the back of Alison Bree's head. So it's all coming from Alison's or from um, Molly Shannon's point of view, who is a stable character. Yeah. I, I mean, I guess that's sort of the part that leaves it open to interpretation um, because that is the part that sort of brings you back into the reality outside of her own head, um, brings that bit of doubt. But um, I don't know, but I, I think that that would be the most confusing part with that um, being sort of out in Molly Shannon's reality, not in just Alison Bree's um, version of reality she's made for herself. I think there's some sort of some implication that oh, I mean, there's a big that this happens this happened before, and I think there's maybe some way where you can watch the movie where you can, you might not even be seeing one linear series of events. You might be seeing a combination of experiences, and even Molly Shannon's that might it seems like it's from her point of view, but maybe that is sort of still in Sarah's head somehow, and it mm -hmm. frames it for her. Well, yeah, because even the stuff with Ethan with like, oh, I've, we've met before, she doesn't remember, but then it comes back and she says, um, remember when you were telling me we'd met before? And he says, this is the first time I've yeah. met you. Like, all of this stuff, nothing nothing quite lines up. And I think they were the feeling of the film, it's like it, it purposely tried to confuse me and to leave me at the end credits going, what on earth is happening? Almost mm -hmm. like to make it an immersive feeling, to give the audience a little bit of that sense of confusion and of never having your feet on the ground, um, which is both incredibly effective and incredibly disorienting. Yeah, well, I think that was absolutely the goal. Wait, sorry, one person at a time. <laughs> oh no, I think that's absolutely accurate. I was, I was basically just agreeing. Um, I think a lot of this is I think it's even it's a deeper level it's you're always confused because you're always like can I even remotely trust what is going on in this movie is actually the plot or what if this is psychosis um, mm. even down to uh, Ron the the plumbing guy mm. how you see Ron the plumbing guy and you go is is Ron a real person is Ron somebody that she is making up in her head? Is he a result of a psychotic break? What, what is wrong? And same thing with the roommate, right? Hmm. Well, absolutely. Yeah. I wonder if the roommate not, is- Not her roommate, her roommate in the, psychi in the psychiatric psych hospital. In the psych ward, yes. yeah. Well, because Ethan even asks, well, who's your roommate? Until that moment that he goes, I don't know the rooming assignments. I sat there thinking, wait, is she hallucinating the roommate too? Until yeah. he clarifies. Hmm. I did notice sort of on the first loop around, because the first time I noticed Ron when I watched it was when he, when Alison Brie noticed him. But in the very first loop, when her day's going fine, he still walks out there in his yellow shirt, which I thought was interesting. It's sort of like, it's there, but then it starts impeding and becoming more visible throughout mm -hmm. the course of the movie, which I thought was interesting. Mm-hmm. Kelly, you saw it twice, so were there like things you saw it the second time? Well, okay, I didn't quite see it twice. So I saw it for the first time. I watched it in Florida um, about a month ago. And then um, just today I had about 
half an hour or 60 minutes maybe to get through a two hour movie. Um, so I sort of scrubbed through everything, just trying to remind myself of what happened. I watched the last 25 minutes in full just because the first time I saw it, I definitely didn't understand that. Whereas the first, be the beginning bits and the date and all that stuff was stuff that I remembered a little bit more clearly because it was, I also, the first time I saw Horse Girl, I didn't know what it was about or anything about it. I didn't know what genre it was in. It was just, oh, like an indie from the Duplass brothers that stars Alison Brie. Absolutely, I'm sold. Um, because all of those things are almost always a home run for me. Um, but uh, yeah, so I went in really blind. So when in the early stuff, I was like, oh, it's like a cute, relatable thing about like, I thought she was a manic pixie dream girl too. Like I thought she was sort of a standard rom-commy kind of awkward girl. Um, so it really threw me. So I watched mostly just to remind myself of what was happening so that I could talk about it a little bit more coherently than a movie I'd seen a month ago. Um, but I would not say I've like fully seen it twice. Um, but certainly, yeah, some of the stuff that I find so confusing is like the white room and how the that girl from um, Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt factors into it and um, all of that kind of the stuff that's supposed to be really trippy, but there's so much of it. It takes up such a large percentage of the runtime. Mm. But I do have a hard time believing that 100% of it, its entire purpose is to make us feel like we don't know what's going on. Yeah. And question our reality. I thought that the, until the, it was implied that the roommate might be fictional, I thought maybe there was supposed to be an implication that this was her roommate the last time. And she's right. maybe that's why she has an image of her and then mm. it's just it's part of this circular repetitive experience that she has but on an institutional level it seems irresponsible to put someone with the same roommate two times so I don't, <laughs> I don't know I don't know but um yeah I feel I feel like to some extent like that the people behind the making of it because I think Alison Brie co-wrote it as well didn't she mm -hmm. that mm. I think they probably had like to an extent a full reading and then some things they deliberately were kind of like and then maybe this and then maybe that right kind of which doesn't mean you can't analyze it but it's sort of I think you're supposed to be like huh a bit at the end sort of like there's a in the the dream episode of Buffy there's a uh uh there's an element there's a the cheese man repeat reappears in every uh, in everything in each dream is super analyzable and everything's a metaphor for something but the uh -huh. cheese man just means nothing He's just like thrown in for fun. Stop trying to analyze it. It's just a thing they included. Yeah. Just let it go. Because <laughs> sometimes dreams have weird stuff. Oh yeah, exactly. Well, the interesting one, so <laughs> I went on Reddit because of course what mm. you do when, you're, when yeah. you want to start a movie club, um, you go on Reddit and see what people are thinking. And one of the coolest theories that I've seen so far is that in the horse accident, she's she also falls off her horse is in a coma dreams of what her life would have been like without that fall mm. and then all of these different fugue states are people trying to get her out of the coma until she gets taken up by the aliens aka brought out of the coma into these bright lights that ah, was like that's interesting damn. <laughs> i think that that might just be as much of a mind warp as the movie uh-huh yeah That'd be an amazing dream for like a 12 year old girl to have. You would think. <laughs> Just like I dream of watching bad 
procedural television. <laughs> I mean, I only dream about playing hide and seek with my little sister. So this is much more sophisticated yeah. than anything I've ever dreamed, but okay. Yeah. That's not interesting. Yeah, it does feel like a very, it could be high potential mm -hmm. for like a Reddity kind of movie. Oh, big time. The you can see the Reddit thread, it's hysterical. God. Would explain why everything seems for like the first 20 minutes or so like it's exclusively in the 90s and she's stuck in a coma. I mean, it makes yeah. sense. And it makes yeah. sense of things that she would imagine careers to be like. You work at a craft store that you frequent with your families and she sees herself working there. She sees herself doing all of these things that she's enjoying doing. She's making connections with her coworkers. She's being interested in things that her coworkers are interested in. Because in reality, the DNAU, or I don't know, it was some spinoff of this ancestry stuff that's been going on. 23andMe, yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's stuff that only Joan is interested in, not her. So it's interesting that the only things that we really get are things uh, that you would also see a 12-year-old girl being interested in. Horses, crafting, you mm -hmm. know, exercise that involves dancing as opposed to lifting heavy things and then putting them down again um, so i mean in a way i, I kind of like that that thought that she really is stuck in the mind of a 90s chick makes sense aren't we all <laughs> <laughs> says the guy on yeah. the group chat yeah. <laughs> did listen to some natalie imbruglia today so never know oh so you're in angst 90s chick territory here. It's Ooh, it's a dangerous territory. <laughs> horse girl got you deeply. Got, <laughs> horse girl got me. <laughs> Would you say you are now torn? Oh no. <laughs> no. No, no, no. No, no. Okay, and as we enter this is, this is 90s pun territory. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Stop. I thought I, I thought I got probably shut the whole thing down. <laughs> We're shutting it down. <laughs> Does anyone have any final thoughts on Horse Girl that are not related to 90s song titles? All right. Well, there goes my list. <laughs> um I mean, I really enjoyed it. I really like movies where you can sort of find new little nuggets to dig into each time you watch it. Um, that was really well done. Works on a lot of different levels, has the mystery element and could also be a metaphor for a very real issue. It was, it was a chef's kiss, chef's kiss, it was good. Duncan, yeah, Nicole, anybody? I liked it. I, 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 like I said at the beginning, my like, my impression of it really was changed. For the first 30 minutes, I was, I, cause I kind of knew vaguely that it gets into dark complex territory, but I didn't know how. And the kind of slightly oopy boppy, like the soundtrack, the soundtrack is like, and I, that stuff was like, uh, it feels like it, it felt like both like 90s, but also kind of like a quirky movie from like 15 years ago. Do you know what I mean? And I was get, and that to me was like, it was sort of putting me off what I thought the movie was gonna do, but the more complicated and the more willing to go to places that it went to, the more I kind of respected what it was trying to do. I don't know if I think it's a totally successful movie, but I think it's, it does give you a lot to talk about. I thought it was the best performance I've seen Alison Brie give. Uh, I haven't seen everything she's done, but I thought it was a really good performance. You should see everything she's done. She's incredible. <laughs> <laughs> 
mean, um, yeah, no, I haven't watched Glow, and I should watch that. You, yeah, mm-hmm. that's the big, that's the big one for sure. Although she, there is an argument to be made that she's like the greatest contributor to modern television. She's been in like four of the best shows. Um, Community, mm-hmm. Mad Men, uh, Glow, and BoJack. Oh yeah, ah. yeah. Uh, yeah, she's awesome. Um, but yeah, definitely check out Glow. Uh, Nicole, did you have any final thoughts? Sure. Um, I mean, it's no secret I've been very, very upfront about my my own mental health stuff throughout my entire adulthood. Like, I'm very clearly somebody with anxiety, someone with depression, not quite at this level. Um, but it's always, in my mind, helpful for people to see films like this, to understand the inner workings of a mentally ill mind. Um, I mean, especially, especially the, these deep feelings of, I can't make the dread go away. Um, uh, and especially watching it with, um, my partner doesn't have mental illness. He's, he doesn't understand what it's like for me to have an anxiety attack or a depressive episode, but he knows what I'm experiencing. So, if I were going to try and have him delve deeper into the mind of somebody with a mental illness, this is probably the movie I'd show him. Um, I basically would have the disclaimer, like, I'm not, I don't have psychotic depression. I don't have paranoid schizophrenia, but this is what I feel. It's an all consuming, um, you know, really all consuming is the best word for it. Um, it takes you over. It really does. And I think that the, the film does a very great job of portraying that. I will agree with Duncan. I don't think it's a totally successful film. Um, but as far as getting those major, in my mind, um, major, major points across really does help. Yeah. Hey, so, and Alex had to jump off. So that's all we have for today. Thanks so much for joining us, guys. This is a great convo. Thank you. Thank you, Kelly. Bye, guys. Stay well. Bye. Bye, you too.